0: Good morning, Soul City. How you doing? Good to see you all. Uh, whether you're in this room or watching online, I, I want to welcome you. And I want to let you know that last Sunday, uh, Pastor Jarrett painted a picture of the new kind of family that God designed for us. It's the family that we can create with brothers and sisters in the faith. And if you missed that message, I want to really encourage you to get caught up. Uh, online if you can, but today we're going to talk about the other kind of family, the one that you didn't get to choose, your family of origin. And Jared gave me this assignment that in the next 30 minutes, I'm going to solve all your family of origin (laughs) issues, anything that you need to know about, okay? Um, The subject of family of origin is right here for me, front and center these days, because back in August, my mom uh, passed away at the age of 94, And my father had died three years prior, so I guess that makes me an orphan now. I have three siblings, um, two sisters and a brother, and we all live in the Chicago area. So together we walked through my mom's illness and her death and then planning her memorial service. Then we spent a whole day together going through her things and reminiscing, and we didn't even fight over anything, which was really great, um, and sharing our memories. Then in the family that God has given me to create with my husband Warren, there's also change in the wind. Our older daughter Samantha became engaged over the holidays to a guy named Will, and they're going to get married uh, next September and create a new family unit. You know, there's few words in the English language that carry as much weight and power as the word family. Have you ever wished you came from a different family? Have you ever compared your family of origin to other people's families and wondered why yours seemed more broken or couldn't have been more healthy? This is very common. And today, we're going to dig into this. It's a delicate issue for many of us. You know, when we're children, our family constitutes our whole world. But no matter what age we reach, even when you get to be as old as me, whether our parents are alive or dead, it is through their eyes that we often see ourselves. And it is against their standards that we often measure ourselves. Our parents are our first and primary judges. And above all, we want their approval. Family members can be our greatest source of comfort and also our greatest challenge. That's an ironic thing, because we want to see the family as a safe place, as a refuge, as a place where we feel secure, but sometimes the people we most want approval from become our harshest critics, right? And everything we say to one another in families, even as we are older, echoes with voices and meanings from the past. Our families often know our most vulnerable place of hurts, and they have the ability to wound us in ways that others cannot. So every single relationship you and I have in life whether it be at work or with our friends or even with the new families we create, will be impacted by our family of origin. And the extent to which we have a fulfilling adult life depends on how well we deal with the dynamics of our family of origin. You may want to deny it, you may want to run away from it, but you really cannot. This is why so many of us have pursued the help of a counselor. Dr. Ronald Richardson states that at some point, Most of us leave our family of origins physically. If you're 30 and you still haven't done that, that would be a good idea to leave your family of origin (laughs) physically, but we rarely leave them emotionally. Now, if you've already moved away from your parents, think about how it feels when you go back to visit or even just talk on the phone. Do you feel yourself acting according to patterns that go back to your youth? I remember when we were newlyweds and we'd go visit my family of origin. Warren told me that I my personality changed. He said that my voice was different, and the entire way I reacted felt like a throwback to something, and I hadn't even noticed that shift. You see, our family is like a filter through which we react to other situations and people all throughout our lives. Believe me, when and if you become a parent, you find yourself talking in ways just like your own parents, even though you swore you would never do that. When Samantha and Will get married, they will each bring family of origin story and experience to their home, to their new relationship. And, of course, Samantha's story is incredibly healthy. I don't know about Will's, but hers is really healthy. (laughs) One day, my girls will drive their children crazy in ways eerily similar to the ways that I have driven them crazy. And to the extent any couple looks at the unfinished business of their past and does the work of understanding their story, they will be able to relate in much more positive ways to each other and also to others. So we all come from some kind of family. And here at Soul City, we have some who have experienced a primarily positive, healthy family of origin. And there are others here today whose story is one of pain and loss, shame, control, and, in some cases, even abuse. None of us has a perfect story, but some of us come from healthier families than others. And when families are going well, there is nothing quite like the joy that you can experience. You laugh at inside jokes, you tell stories only your family knows, you feel safe and comfortable and deeply loved. Last month, our family of four uh, took kind of our last weekend together as a family of four to celebrate Johanna's birthday. And when we got back home, one of my girls texted me, and she simply said, I love our family. And that meant so much to me. I love our family, too. We've made a lot of mistakes, but I do love our family. So here's the bottom line. Our family of origin story impacts every other relationship in life. Now, as Jarrett mentioned last week, there are many stories of families in the Bible, and most of them are incredibly dysfunctional, which is oddly encouraging, don't you think? Um, Today, I want to explore with you the family in Scripture that we probably know the most about. They get the most pages uh, in the Bible. In fact, their story spans 25 chapters in the book of Genesis. There's no way for us to cover all of it, but I want to encourage you at some point this week to sit down and read Genesis 25 through 50, in one sitting as if you're reading it like a novel, okay? Because we studied this story about 18 months ago. It's the story of Joseph. And it's as rich with flawed characters, amazing plot lines, deceit, secrets, victories, uh, adultery, anything you can think of. And it was made into a Broadway musical with Donnie Osmond, so it's got that going <laughs> for it, too. So in a few moments, we're going to read some of this story. I want to invite you to pick up the Bible that is under your seat or in front of you, and it is page 31 you're going to, the very first book of the Bible. Just put your finger in there at page 31, the book of Genesis. When we look at our family of origin story, we need to look at grandparents and even great grandparents if we're going to fully understand our own experience. So I want to give you a little background on Joseph's ancestors. His father was Jacob. Jacob is the one who deceived his own father and betrayed his older brother in order to cheat him out of the advantages given back then to the firstborn sons. Then Jacob got a taste of his own medicine when he fell in love with a woman named Rachel, and he was deceived by his father-in-law in in that story. Somehow he was tricked into sleeping with Rachel's not-as-attractive sister, Leah, And ended up marrying them both, which apparently was okay back then. So I know this sounds like a major soap opera. I want to show you a chart that reveals Joseph being one of 12 brothers, all sons of Jacob, from four different wives. You think your family's complicated. Look at this one. So we've got Jacob and Leah, who had six sons. We've got maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. They were wives as well. And then Rachel who gave birth to the last two. Now, you may be wondering, where are the daughters in this family? What are the odds that there would only be boys? Actually, we know there were daughters from a later verse that tells us Jacob's sons and daughters comforted him. Also, one of Leah's daughters named Dinah is mentioned. But in that patriarchal society, men were the focus. Women weren't even a part of the story. And how glad we are that that has changed, and women are now very much a part of the story. Joseph and Benjamin were the last two sons born, and Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. We're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. I also need to tell you, in case you aren't already confused enough, that Jacob is also called Israel. Okay, here we go. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives and he brought their father a bad report about them. This is the first known incidence of tattletaling that we have. (laughs) Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a word to him. All of the dramatic story to follow stems from the father's favoritism. Parents, if you have a favorite, you cannot be this obvious. Don't give (laughs) special presents. Joseph, who needed to develop in relational and emotional intelligence, he was only 17, decides to tell his brothers about two of his dreams. So look at verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. (laughs) His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. The second dream was more of the same with the sun, moon and stars bowing down to Joseph. Then this teenager tells his father the dream as well and is rebuked. But verse 11 tells us his father kept the matter in mind, which will be important years later. By the way, if you ever have a dream where your siblings bow down to you, it's important to keep that to yourself. Just (laughs) don't mention that. So the story takes a dark turn when Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers who were tending the flocks. When the brothers saw him in the distance, they plotted to kill him. Look at their hatred in verse 19. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other, Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. The majority of the brothers wanted to kill him, but look at what the firstborn son, which is important, the firstborn son, Reuben, says in verse 21. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them, and his plan was to take him back to his father later. So the band of brothers stripped Joseph of the robe that they couldn't stand seeing him wear, and they threw him into an empty cistern. A while later, the plot clots because they saw a caravan going by, and they decide, let's sell Joseph as a slave. Judah convinced them of this plan. Now, apparently, Reuben was not there for that decision and had still hoped he could rescue his brother, Look at verse 29, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes, which is a sign of lament in that culture. The brothers decide to deceive their father into thinking Joseph had been killed by a ferocious animal, and when they report this news, Jacob is distraught. We are told he wept and mourned for his son for many days. This tragic story touches on so many issues connected to our family of origin. The first challenge for each one of us is this. Dig deep into your family of origin story. I invite you, no, actually, I challenge you to do the work. We need to become curious, like detectives, seeking to understand our story as best we can. In this one short message, we can't possibly cover this enormous topic, but using the story of Joseph's family as a backdrop, I want to give us a few tools for doing this important work. Sociologist Deborah Tannen has done tremendous research in this area, and she describes a continuum in every family relationship. We are striving to find the right place on this continuum between closeness and distance. She says we want to be close enough to family members to feel protected and safe, but not so close, right, that we feel suffocated. Here's a picture of this tension. Every relationship we have between parent and child, as well as those with siblings, are often about connection and control, hierarchy and equality. And every conversation you have with your family of origin can be looked at through this lens. As we grow up, We gradually want more and more autonomy and independence from our parents. This is normal. It's called differentiation. But at the same time, we long for security and love and approval. And in our conversation with parents and siblings, especially from adolescence onward, we can vividly see this delicate dance between connection and control. So let's look at an example. I promise you this is not a true story, just a fictional example, okay? An adult daughter in her 20s goes back home for a visit. Her mother has cut out some magazine photos of hairstyles that she thinks her daughter might consider for herself. From the mother's lens, she's trying to establish closeness to show interest. But the daughter can perceive this as unwanted advice, as criticism of her current hairstyle, as judgment. So the mom walks away thinking, I can't even open my mouth, or, I'm only saying this because I love you. And the daughter stews over the fact that she can never seem to please her mother, and why won't she just stay out of my business? Now, do you see how these perspectives are so essential to understand? Our desire for connection, approval, and control are all mixed in together. Deborah Tannen challenges us to separate the message, which is just the meaning of the words that we say, with the meta-message, which is the bigger point. And this is so important with siblings, as well. Connection and control, but particularly hierarchy and equality, come into play with our siblings. So let me offer some other next steps you can take as you do this ruthless inventory of your family of origin. First, explore your history. Commit to understanding more and more about the family you came from, including going back to grandparents and great-grandparents. Ask questions of any living family members, even aunts, uncles, and cousins. Search for clues as to how your own family of origin was impacted by those who came before. In the last decade or so of both of my parents' lives, I tried to ask a lot of questions, and I only regret that I didn't ask more. Now, for Joseph's story, he could look at the thread of deceit that was woven through his family all the way back to his father and his uncle He could understand the underlying jealousies between the four wives of Jacob and how that affected him and his siblings. My family of origin includes my parents and four children. We have a photo. The only one in that picture who's not in the family of origin is the guy with the mustache in the back row. He was my older sister's first husband. But there were three girls in the family, followed by the youngest, my brother, Chip. And when I look back at my history, you can tell who I am, by the way, because my hairstyle hasn't changed for (laughs) decades. Okay. Yeah. So it's really helpful for me to look back at the history of both of my parents. They were both middle children and functioned in some ways like peacemakers. My father's father was an alcoholic, and I reflected often on how that influenced my dad in many ways including his own choice to avoid alcohol. My parents grew up during the Great Depression, which obviously affected their views on money and security. There's so much to learn when we look back and uncover threads and patterns. What are the threads and patterns in your family of origin? What do you need to understand? A big part of your exploration will focus on birth order and sibling relationships unless you are an only child. There are few relationships as close or as hierarchical as that between siblings. Children, you see, are competing right, for the attention and approval of their parents. We have a strong sense of injustice if a sibling gets a privilege we don't get or if there's way more photos of the firstborn than anybody else. It's not fair, is the cry of siblings, right? Younger siblings can grow to resent the bossiness or power of older siblings. Our siblings are the ones who have been with us since the beginning, but even though we were born into the same family, it's actually a different family when each child is born. Parents are different when we're rookies than we are when we have a little more experience. Some of us have step-siblings in blended families, which makes it even more complex. Our siblings have the ability to wound us quicker than anybody. My younger sister, I never heard this story until I was uh, an adult, but my younger sister told me the story of how my older sister, so I'm between the two, my older sister Lynn told my younger sister April that both of them were adopted. This is not true. But she told them that both of them were adopted. And when my parents went to the orphanage, they really wanted Lynn. But the orphanage said, you can't have Lynn unless you take April, too. <laughs> and so grudgingly, my parents took April as well right? That'll scar you for a while, for sure. (laughs) The difference in birth positions and gender accounts for many of the ways in which we relate to other people all throughout our lives. This was absolutely the case in Joseph's family. Reuben, the oldest brother, was highly responsible and he wanted to rescue Joseph. He carried a lot of guilt for the way he and his brothers had mistreated Joseph. Judah, A middle son was more of a peacemaker. And both Joseph and Benjamin display characteristics of the youngest children. Here are some questions to ask as you look at your family of origin. I want you to really, really dig into these. First of all, what roles did you and others play in the family? Were any of these roles played by you or others? The clown, the genius, the couch potato, the saint, the sinner, the beauty queen or the beauty king, the goody-two-shoes, the social outcast, the rebel. What were some of the labels applied to you as a child? Like, she's the quiet one, or he's the energizer bunny, or he's strong-willed, or she's a leader, or he's the good-looking one, or she's trouble. Some of these labels are positive and some are negative, but we carry them with us into our adult lives. Now, there's three other really basic roles that play out in families. Those are persecutor, victim, or rescuer. We can play one of them predominantly, or we can shift and play different ones in various situations. Is there a sibling or a parent who consistently played one of these roles in your family? What role do you most identify with? In Joseph's story, Reuben tried to be the rescuer, some of the other brothers who wanted to kill Joseph were clearly persecutors, and when he was 17, Joseph was the victim. In my family of origin, as one of the middle daughters, I often saw myself trying to play the role of rescuer. Both of my sisters had some seasons of rebellion, so I played the role of the good girl, always trying to please my parents and bridge that tension between my parents and my sisters. And my younger brother, my only brother, the golden child, uh, as the youngest, was also the funny guy. Now, closely related to roles is the next question. What are the alignments and secrets in your family of origin? Most families have alignments between siblings or one or both parents to the exclusion of another. These alignments can be temporary for a season or they can run deep and persist over a lifetime. I read that a family is like a small corporation with a big public relations department, usually headed up by the mother. (laughs) Nothing establishes alignments more than information, who has it, who doesn't, and who tells it to whom. Withholding or revealing information is the power that creates these alignments. And families are full of secrets. What are some of the secrets in your family? These secrets have a huge impact on the system. And when you learn a secret about your family that was hidden from you, you can feel like an outsider and you feel betrayed. Joseph's family was full of secrets, enormous secrets. The brothers hid from their father for like 20 years that Joseph was actually alive, that they had sold him as a slave. For 20 years, Jacob mourned the loss of his favorite son and it was all a big lie. My extended family had several secrets. Mostly it was information about nieces and nephews that was hidden from my parents. So on the drive to family gatherings, Warren would actually try to review with me who knew what so he wouldn't say something that he shouldn't. You see, family secrets are exhausting, and they can lead to a lot of pain. What secrets or alignments exist in your family? Here's one more question to ask. What were the rules in your family. There's two kinds of rules, spoken and unspoken. Spoken rules are easy to remember, like don't chew with food in your mouth, or talk with food in your mouth, or say please and thank you, or no television until you do your homework. It's the unspoken rules that we have to dig deeper for. For example, in some families, it's not okay to be sad. Maybe nobody ever said that, but you just knew it wasn't okay to be sad. Those feelings weren't allowed. In other families, it's not okay to be angry. That was the case in my family of origin. Uh, My parents thought that this was the right thing, but they often told us Christians don't get angry. So we had to learn to push our anger down or deny it, and when it would leak out in bad ways, we would be punished. Maybe it's okay in your family to be sad, as it was for me, but not angry. In some families, fear is not allowed, or maybe it's allowed for females, but it's not allowed for males. What were the unspoken rules in your house? And how has that carried with you into adulthood? I've given you just a start for your ruthless inventory on your family of origin, and maybe when you do this assessment, you will see some aspects of your family of life that are to be celebrated. I hope so. I hope you look back and you have some really rich memories. And no doubt all of us will see some dimensions of our family that we regret parts that were hurtful, or incomplete, or just plain wrong. And we may wish we could go back and change those things, but here's what I know. We cannot rewrite our family of origin story, but we can reframe it. We can't rewrite it, but we can reframe it. How do we do that? Well, first, let me show you how reframing took place in Joseph's story. To catch us up, I'll summarize what happened. After being sold by his brothers, right, as a slave, he ends up in Egypt, and pretty soon he's in one of the homes of Pharaoh's official. Pharaoh was the big dog in Egypt. He rose to a leadership role before being falsely accused of a crime and getting thrown into prison. While he's in jail, Joseph accurately interprets the dreams of a couple of the inmates in jail so much so that it launched him into an opportunity to explain some of Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh had some dreams he didn't understand. Well, he clearly described those to Pharaoh, and then he became second in command only to Pharaoh. What he communicated was that the dream meant that the land was going to be plentiful and great harvests for seven years, and then there was going to be seven years of famine. Joseph recommended to Pharaoh that they save one fifth of the harvest for all of those first seven years so that there would be grain and food for the famine. Well, meanwhile, back at home, Jacob and his family are starting to go hungry. They're starving. And they hear the, a rumor that there's grain to be had in Egypt. So Jacob sends all the brothers, except his beloved Benjamin, he keeps him at home, he sends all the rest of the brothers to go ask for help. When they arrive, the story becomes even more dramatic. Let's look at Genesis 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, look at this, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. They did not recognize him. He recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Later in that chapter, Joseph was actually so overcome that he went away by himself and wept. The story takes many twists and turns. Eventually, Joseph sends them back. He still hasn't identified himself. He sends them back and says, bring that other brother that you told me about. Bring Benjamin with you next time. And on the second journey, finally, Joseph makes himself known. Look at Genesis 45, verse 5. He says to them and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that god sent me ahead of you for two years now there's been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing or reaping but god sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance so then it was not you who sent me here but God. Do you see that reframing he's doing? He's reframing his entire story. He can't rewrite it. He can't erase the betrayal and cruelty of his brothers, but he was able to bring a new perspective to all that had happened. Look down at verse 14 for the climax of this dramatic scene. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. Benjamin embraced him, weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. I bet they you know, had a little chat. I would love to have heard that. Like, hey, remember that time we threw you in the well? Ah. So interesting, unweaving, untangling their story. So here's the good news for you and for me. It is true that nothing can change the past. But we can change the past by changing our interpretation of it. In order to reframe our story, first of all, we have to take full responsibility and refuse to be a victim. Everything in us wants to blame other people for how we're feeling, for how we turned out. Healthy adults realize that we cannot change someone else in the family. Did you hear that? We cannot change someone else in the family, and it's futile to try. The only person we can really change is ourselves. Dr. Richardson says that your family provided an environment for you, but they are not responsible for what you did with that. No one made you the way you are. Does that mean we just passively ignore or deny our family of origin issues? Absolutely not. I believe in each situation we have two major options and that the Holy Spirit will help us discern which of the options is best. One option is acceptance, and the other is speaking truth. There are some aspects of our story that it is best to accept, to let go of the anger and the bitterness or resentment. Now, this would exclude situations of abuse where it's never okay to condone or deny what happened. But coming to a place of acceptance is essential, and you might need to do this with a family member who is no longer living. My relationship with my mother was challenging for me. At a young age, I began to see that my longing for complete, unconditional love from her, which, by the way, we all have that longing, and none of us get it exactly how we want it, but I could see that it wasn't going to be reached. And I longed for more intimate conversation with her. I didn't feel like she really knew me or ever would. So like a lot of young adults, I found myself in counseling. And my primary goal was to work on my relationship with my mother. And after several months of doing that, the counselor was trying to steer me to other topics, mostly about me and my responsibility. And I kept saying, I don't think I'm done talking about my mother. Can we talk about her a little bit more? And eventually, he helped me see that I needed to come to a place of acceptance to understand my mother's own story and her limits, and also to learn to appreciate what she could and could not give me. I learned to see that she actually did love me in, in a deep way, and I had to do some letting go and some forgiving, some forgiveness work. Our last years together were so much sweeter because I had come to a place of acceptance. Some of you have some forgiving work to do. But there are other family situations where we need to usher in energy and courage to speak the truth. Example, I read the story of a young couple who had their own children and they were going to visit the grandparents. And when they visited, they heard the grandparents saying some shaming things to the grandchildren. This was not behavior to be accepted. So the dad spoke up and he said to his parents, this is your house. And it's fine for you to object to how the kids are acting. And you can ask them to change their behavior, but it's not okay to belittle them or me because they don't act the way you'd prefer. This dad said, I love my kids and I'd like you to treat them with respect. And if you'd like, we can work together on coming up with some consequences for teaching them about their behavior. Now, how many of us would be willing to go there? If you're like me, you might think, oh, that wouldn't be nice or, that wouldn't be honoring of my parents, or I don't want the relationship to be strained. I believe many of us need to follow the words of Ephesians 4, verse 25, where we read that we must lay aside falsehood and speak truthfully to one another. What difficult conversations have you been avoiding in your family? What are some conversations that you can think of right now that really need to happen. It might be a series of conversations that you need to initiate. When we think through our options, I have sort of three physical moves to suggest to you. And again, this is a discernment process with you and God in each situation. One move is the letting go move. This is the place of acceptance, understanding, and forgiveness when God says, let it go. And sometimes that's what we need to do. Other times, It's the speak the truth move. It's having the courage to take a step to initiate the call to say, could we meet? Could we talk? That's a courageous step, speaking the truth. Opening your mouth and not being so afraid. And then I have a special one for all of us, but especially for moms and grandmothers. This is the biting the tongue move, okay? (laughs) This is where the Spirit prompts you to just keep your advice to yourself or your tendency to control. What is God prompting you to do? To let go and forgive someone? To have a courageous conversation, to open your mouth and go there even though it's gonna be uncomfortable? Or to bite your tongue? To be quiet? One final thought, we can't rewrite our story, We we can reframe it, but the best news of all is that God will redeem our story. That means he'll make something beautiful out of it. In the final chapter of Genesis, we see how he did this for Joseph. Jacob died, and he was buried. And after the funeral, the brothers were really nervous now. They're thinking, he's going to pay us back. He's going to try to get revenge. And when Joseph heard about this, we're told he wept. We're told he wept many times. I love how emotional Joseph is. And look at Genesis 50, verse 18. His brothers then came, and they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. My friends, no matter how difficult... Or broken or painful your family of origin story is. God can make something beautiful out of your future going forward. There can be healing and forgiveness and hope. And many of us get to build a new family of origin here on earth. You've probably noticed if you're on social media that our co-lead pastors, Jeannie and Jarrett, call their family Team Stevens all over their pictures, Team Stevens, hashtag, whatever. And I admit... (laughs) I admit when I saw that, I was a little annoyed. Team Stevens. But when I thought about it a little further, I figured out I was just jealous that I didn't think of it. I mean, Team Beach, that would have been great. Or better yet, Beach Party, how's that? Beach Party would have been awesome. But I look here at Soul City... And I hear about new young families and older families as well. And you know, I I see people doing a really good job. I really do. I see people like Jarrett and Jeannie and Sarah and Todd and Doug and Nicole, Patrick and Jenny, and I, I cheer them on. The Griffins sitting right here in the front row. I see single parents, single parents, like Joel Barnes and Oksana and Octavia doing an unbelievable job, writing a new story. And I want to say to you, you can create a healthier family than the one you came from. You really can. You're going to make your mistakes, but you can create a healthier family. And for all of us, for those of you who are not married or who don't have children, you can create a family relationship in this community i've learned that some of my friends and sisters in the faith are closer to me than some of my own family members and we can all do that and the good news is god can redeem our story he can bring healing and hope and create new families that are marked by love and treasuring one another and being a beautiful haven. God can do that, and you can do that. No matter how broken your past, you can do that with his help. So let me pray for all of us. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you that we can call you Heavenly Father. Thank you that you came up with the whole idea of families. What a beautiful concept. And god you know the wounds in this room you know everybody's family of origin story you were there at every moment you weep with those who weep and you want to bring healing and grace to our story i pray that we would have the courage to look at our stories and then that you would give us the wisdom god in each situation in each moment to know is this a time when i need to just let it go and accept and forgive Is this a time when I need to speak up and dig in and be courageous, or is this a time I need to bite my tongue? God, we trust you for that wisdom. And I pray for every mom and dad, every grandparent in this room today. I pray, God, that you would give us hope, that you would give us tools, and that you would help us to create healthy, healthy families that would bring you great joy. We love you, Father, and we thank you for this community of faith today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.